Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. This is the 25th class, I think, in our jhana structured study. Uh, last week we looked at, uh, at the two previous weeks, we looked at the, uh, uh, the, the Four Noble Truths. And now we're going to look at that Fourth Noble Truth of the, uh, the, the Noble Truth of the Eightfold Path. So the Buddha referred to this as the, uh, the path that leads to the, uh, to the cessation of all suffering, to the purification of all beings. And then he would always say, precisely this Eightfold Path. So this Eightfold Path is what the Buddha taught as the path for so-called awakening, for recognizing and abandoning stress and suffering, uh, rooted in ignorance of the Four Noble Truths. And notice how the Buddha takes us through the analysis of the Eightfold Path. There's nothing that he teaches us to do. You could even say demands us, but in, in his very gentle way that are impossible, and I would say are even difficult to do, except that we have very complicated and conditioned minds. And it's only because of, uh, because of conditioned mind, and remember he referenced that with Alex before earlier, that we have difficulty with the Dhamma. It's not the Dhamma itself that is difficult. And in fact, it's, it's utterly simple. But it's because we're conditioned to maintain ignorance that we find the Dhamma or integrating the Dhamma difficult. And so notice... As I'm reading this, the utter simplicity of this instructions and how anybody could do this, including us. The analysis of the Eightfold Path. The Magavabhanga actually means the, an analysis of suffering. I have heard that on one, one occasion the Buddha was staying in Savati at Jita's Grove, Anathapandika's monastery. He addressed those assembled. Friends, I will now give you a detailed analysis of the Noble Eightfold Path. Listen mindfully. This is the Noble Eightfold Path. Right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right meditation. So the Buddha doesn't just give that out to us and say, go on your way, like the Ten Commandments. I remember the first time I was learning the Ten Commandments, I was like, I can't do any of this stuff. I can't do it. Because I didn't know how. And I really couldn't do it. So the Buddha doesn't just say, engage in these right aspects of behavior. He tells us exactly what it is. Nothing is left up to chance. Nothing is left up to speculation. Nothing is left up to fabrication or magical or mystical thinking. He asked a rhetorical question. And what is right view? Right view, and it, this, this relates directly to the Four Noble Truths. Right view is knowledge with regards to stress. That's both the entry point to the Dhamma and the culmination of the Dhamma. Recognizing that I don't understand stress and the culmination of the Dhamma is a profound understanding of stress. Excuse me. To some people, that might seem like almost too insignificant to even bother with. Why do I care about stress? But I just had an interesting conversation. I'm sorry to keep picking on you, Alex, but that was the conversation I had earlier. And we were talking about a, a common life situation that brings up stress. And it's a common life situation that every single human being will come up against in one form or another. Not The details are different for most everyone, but the situation itself is common. And it's stress arising. 
That's what the Buddha realized as the common problem of human distraction and difficulty, human confusion. And he realized that it is that initial distraction and preoccupation with stress and suffering that led to all manner of suffering, as the Buddha described it, meaning everything from the, from the most minor disagreement I might be having with myself to, to global conflicts. In the Buddha's case, it was regional conflicts. But he recognized the root cause of that was stress and the preoccupation with stress. So that was the, the foundation of his whole, his whole dhamma, his whole dispensation, was recognizing and abandoning my contributions to stress. Not the world's contributions. Not, he's not describing worldly conditions that we can't do anything about, but my reaction to the common stresses that occur as, as a consequence of me having a human life. Remember how he describes stress and suffering. He begins with, there is birth. Meaning, as a consequence of having a human life, there will be stress and suffering. So, the most important thing is knowledge with regards to stress. Then he says, knowledge with regards to the origination of stress. And we're to learn, we learned last week and throughout these studies, that it is craving for and clinging to views and objects and events that are rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths. Knowledge with regards to the origination of stress. Then right view is knowledge with regards to the cessation of stress. Now the Buddha is using the term knowledge and I am in the, the restoration not as just an intellectual knowledge because everybody understands what the word stress means but it's an experiential understanding of stress. And it's an experiential understanding of the cessation of stress. And so in the moment the experiential the experience of the cessation of stress is in this moment, I recognize that my mind is distressed, I take another breath, I unite my mind and my body, and there's no stress. It is just that. Of course, because of conditioned thinking and ongoing wrong views, the next breath brings us back into that experience of ongoing stress and distraction. So we have this practice, this practice of jhana meditation that we're going to get to in this class of constantly restoring our mind back to its pure state. And there's nothing magical about it. And we experience it every time we're mindful of a breath. Knowledge with regard to the cessation of stress. I know it. And I know how to do it. So then the only thing that is left to me is, how do I integrate it completely? How do I go from this to ongoing Fourth foundation of mindfulness, ongoing equanimity. Knowledge with regards to the way of practice leading to the cessation of stress. It's the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path is precisely that. This, friends, is right view. So it culminates with, with the direction to develop an understanding of stress and then the, um, uh, the final direction of it is the Eightfold Path that brings that to bear. And again, you'll find no other instruction for any other path anywhere in what the Buddha taught. And what is right intention? Being mindful of the intention to recognize and abandon wrong views. How do we know what wrong views are? We weigh them against the Eightfold Path. We weigh them against the stress that we're causing in our own life. Because if it's causing stress, it's a wrong view. If we find ourselves entangled in the world again or entangled in our own thoughts, it's because of a view rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. 
being mindful of the intention to remain free from ill will. So when we find ourselves getting upset with ourselves or others, the simple, the simple direction is recognize it and let it go. Don't judge yourself harshly. Don't try to figure out where it's coming from or place blame on yourself or others. Recognize it and abandon it. Being mindful of the intention to remain harmless to all beings. There's three aspects to right intention. And this is the key to developing the Dhamma. Right intention is being mindful of the intention to recognize and abandon all wrong views. Being mindful of the intention to remain free from ill will. And being mindful of the intention to remain harmless to all beings, including ourselves. And I would say beginning with ourselves. Does anybody feel that they can't maintain that intention? And it is right intention that is the primary purpose of refined mindfulness. In this moment, am I focused on, am I holding in mind? Remember, mindfulness means to recollect or to hold in mind. In this moment, as I find myself entangled in the world, in a worldly situation, is it my intention to recognize and abandon ill will, wrong views? Is it my intention to recognize and abandon all views rooted in ignorance of, of four noble truths? And how do I know it? Because I can feel it in my body. Because I've developed jhana meditation to that level, and it's not a deep and profound level, that I can now recognize a feeling or a thought without taking them personally. The fourth foundation of mindfulness. Recognizing the present quality of my mind. Is everybody following me with that? Okay. The Buddha concludes that with saying, this, friends, is right intention. Nobody can misunderstand that. And what is right speech? Abstaining from lying, including, most importantly, lying to ourselves. Abstaining from divisive speech, including, and most importantly, divisive speech with ourselves. I'm no good. I'm not smart enough. I'm not fast enough. I'm not tall enough. I'm not young enough. I'm not old enough. Abstaining from abusive speech, including against ourselves. Abstaining from gossip. Abstaining from idle chatter, especially with ourselves. And most people wouldn't even make that connection. But most of our lives, from birth to death, we engage in internal idle chatter. We keep that, that fabricated story going because of a lack of discipline. Another word for discipline in this case is a lack of concentration. Ongoing, self-inflicted idle chatter that we feel we must maintain in order to maintain these fabricated views of ourselves. That's why we're constantly grasping after and connecting one thought to another without that, that little pause that comes from jhana meditation. And in that moment, I'm interrupting, I'm using the process that the Buddha taught us to interrupt internal and external idle chatter. It's now ceased. And what is right action? Abstaining from taking life, including character assassination, relates to right speech. Abstaining from, from taking what is not freely given, and this is not just physical objects. In fact, even more importantly, it's not taking what is not emotionally given from someone. We've all heard that phrase, they take hostages in, in relationships. We might not have it even applied to ourselves, and that's what we're referring to. To manipulate another in any way is what the Buddha is referring to in an even more important level of abstaining, uh, abstaining from not taking what is freely given. And there, well, I don't want to get too deep into this. Years ago, in fact, probably my foray into so-called spiritual ideas 
was getting involved in the, um, the, the uh, Americas, the, really the West, uh, in the late 50s, not so much, but then getting into the 60s and the 70s, had a proliferation of spiritual slash success writers, Napoleon Hill, Ogmandino, U.S. Anderson, et cetera, et cetera. And I read every one of them, and I really thought that they were the key. Um, but what they were teaching at a very subtle level was, was emotional manipulation of other people. They did it under the guise of spirituality. In fact, Ogmandino was great. If you ever get a chance to read any of Ogmandino's books, read them just to understand what this guy was talking about. He was brilliant. But he taught a very subtle level of taking what is not freely given for the purposes of getting something else. um, An extreme example, but a very good example, would be the Christian Crusades or the modern jihads. The Christian Crusades were built on taking what was not freely given and building a whole structure out of that. We all do this in in very subtle ways with other people. And it's inadvertent. It always leads to tension. Most of the time, we don't even realize we're doing it. It's not something we should judge ourselves harshly about at any point, but we should recognize that's what we're talking about. It's not just taking, taking a stack of gum from the local drugstore. Abstaining from what abstaining abstain from taking what is not freely given. Are you freely giving me your mindful presence? So I'll just use one more example of that. I do not teach the Dhamma to anyone unless they ask me to. In fact, even if someone says, Why are you so happy all the time? and most of the time I am, not always. I'll just tell them I might say I well, I meditate a lot. But I do not push anybody in any direction ever. In fact, I think every one of you will recognize that I always ask your permission before I, I say anything in that way. I hope, I, I hope you feel that I do that with you. This is because that was modeled by what the Buddha... The Buddha never taught anything. He didn't go stand out on a street corner. He didn't proselytize. But he taught anyone and everyone who, who really wanted to learn. And he never excluded anyone. He was mindfully present. I'll continue. Abstaining from sexual misconduct. And I, and, uh, I, I mentioned this last week. Um, what the Buddha is referring to, he, the Buddha never made moral judgments about anything, but he, uh, in, in, a general, in a general and broad way. But it relates exactly or directly back to, to abstain from ill will or harming anyone, always remaining harmless. So his direction for sexual activities as applied to every activity. It should be met with generosity. It should be met with, gen- with gentleness. It should be met with honesty. It should not be met with not taking what is freely given. And it's interesting that he, he says this, abstain from, from taking what is not freely given, and the next admonition is abstain from sexual misconduct. How do we abstain from sexual mis- misconduct? By not taking what is not freely given. Often, and it has nothing to do with, with male or female, often sex devolves into some sort of a power play, even if it's very subtle. And the, way, the only way that I know to, have, to overcome my own proclivities for that, getting what I want out of this moment, is to always be focused on generosity. And that changes every situation, whether it's sexual or it's, it's having a, a cup of coffee with someone. Be focused on generosity. A few, about a year ago, one of my students said, you got, I don't watch much TV, but he says, you got to go watch this TV show. It's full of bodhisattvas, meaning people caring about it. He says, okay, tell me what it was. And there's this show called, 
uh, I lost track, New Amsterdam. And it really is a pretty well, if you're going to watch a show, it's a pretty good show. But the, but the catch line is, how can I help? How can I help? That's the attitude we should take to every situation. With every, if we want to be mindfully present with someone, go, go with that attitude. How can I help you? How can I be, and the, the most help we can give anyone, whether it's, it's in bed next to someone or having a cup of coffee, is being mindfully present with gentleness, with honesty, with directness. And how do we develop these qualities directly through the Eightfold Path? And what is right livelihood? Right, li- right livelihood, of, this is, let me preface that. When I first came across the Eightfold Path and understood what this man was trying to teach me from 2,600 years ago, the first thought I had is, isn't right livelihood, isn't that covered by right speech and right action? Why do I need it to look at this? And after reading this, and then reading a little bit about the history of the Buddha's time, there's some really good books by uh, Richard Gombrich and a cousin of mine, uh, just by you know, circumstance, his name is Carl Olson, that really get into the, what, what, the, uh, what the situation was during the Buddha's lifetime. And so the Buddha recognized that people that were otherwise good and honest when it was time to put food on the table for, for spouse and baby... They would break those right speech and right action uh, guidelines. And, and it seemed reasonable at times. It seemed reasonable to people that, to, okay, let me, let me just um, shade what's right here. And I noticed that in my own business. I used to be a member of uh, you know, some different business organizations. And you know, a lot of those meetings kind of broke down, especially after people had six or seven martinis, was to what you're doing to... to to squeeze more money out of people, which is, that's why I stopped going to those meetings. Um, right livelihood is very simple. Right livelihood abandons dishonest livelihood. How simple could it be? Right livelihood is honest. That's the Buddhist teachings from 2,600 years ago. And imagine if we, if we learned as a society that one lesson. Just that one lesson to engage in right livelihood all the way down. Not just if you own a business, but if you own a church or a coffee shop or you're engaged in politics. Imagine if you, if you had this understanding, it would change the world. This one simple thing. But we can't do it. Why? Because our minds are still rooted in greed, aversion, and deluded thinking. And what is right effort? Now we're getting into how to apply this. Right effort is, is the effort developing the skillful desire, skillful desire, Shanda, and the ongoing persistence to avoid unskillful qualities that are not present. Again, what does all that mean? A lot of words. The Buddha's meaning, now that you're starting Dhamma practice, put a stop in. Stop grasping after ever more distracting practices. Put a stop in. Stop grasping after anything that is rooted in greed at this point. He begins right effort with saying stop. He begins, another way that I refer to the Eightfold Path often, is that the Eightfold Path is limiting. It limits our grasping. It limits our greed as long as we start integrating it. The Buddha starts off right effort by saying, right effort is the effort developing a skillful desire and ongoing persistence, we keep it up, to avoid unskillful qualities that are not present. Let's stop creating fabrications in our lives at this point. Most important. 
Then he says, right effort is the effort in developing the skillful desire and ongoing persistence <coughs> to abandon unskillful qualities that are present. How do we know what those unskillful qualities are? How do we, how do we recognize them? The Buddha just taught us. They will always manifest in our speech and our actions. Always. That's why these, these simple, this simple direction is so profound. If we want to know the quality of our mind, look what's coming out of our mouth, because it will always tell. And even more importantly, what we're telling others, quiet your mind and look at what you're telling yourself. That's the value of jhana meditation and the ever-deepening levels of jhana, because we can finally recognize that idle chatter that we, that's been running our lives. That idle chatter, the uncontrolled idle chatter that's been directing us towards distress. Jhana meditation in the framework of the Eightfold Path allows us to recollect mindfulness, our breath in our body, and practice the Dhamma in this moment to use the Eightfold Path in the limiting way that it's meant to act. Right effort is effort developing the skillful desire and ongoing persistence to establish skillful qualities that are not yet present. What are those qualities? Well, we, we learned... In the, in the previous sentence, to recognize those qualities through right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And how do we develop them? By developing right speech, right action, and right livelihood. There's no mystery here. And when I first understood this, and, I, and it, was, it was really this line that was another one of those aha moments, because the first eight or nine hundred times I read the Eightfold Path, it was still a bunch of words to me until I started understanding this simple practice, because my head was caught up in the mysticism that I had developed all these years too, the things that I thought it should be, rather than just applying it to the way that I thought and the way that I act. And reading this, and I can still remember, I guess I remember right where I was sitting when I had this thought, and the surroundings. It was holy, it's my thinking that are screwing me up. It's me that doing this to me. That was the first time I had a self-controlling thought. Because it was the first time in my life that I had the ability to do something. Now notice I didn't say do something about it, just to do something that was meaningful in my life. And in this case, it was to retake my mind from ignorance that I was born with and that I had developed over my, you know, my life up until, you know, say, 40 years prior to that. Right effort. Right effort is the, is the skillful effort in the, is the effort in developing the skillful desire and persistence to establish skillful qualities that are not yet present. Beginning with right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And then the other skillful qualities are the eightfold path. Right effort is effort in developing the skillful desire and ongoing persistence to end confusion and increase the full development of skillful qualities that are present. And then the Buddha concludes these simple instructions with saying, this, friends, is right effort. So if you're ever wondering, are you going in the right direction? Is your effort sufficient for developing the Dhamma? Just come back to this. And if it's not, just do this. And it's just that way. And I don't mean to be too simplistic, because what we're doing is, is uncovering and resolving the most complicated organism ever developed, our own minds. 
But it would make sense that it would be very simple, wouldn't it? I remember saying years ago, when I was trying to understand what the Buddha taught, it's just an internal thought, that the truth, if it's really the truth, it's got to be simple. An awakened human being couldn't have taught something that is this ridiculously complicated and ethereal. And that's what started focusing my mind on looking at something that I could actually understood. And that's when I, this started making sense to me. This friends is right effort. And then the Buddha takes us even deeper into our practice. And what is right mindfulness? We talk about mindfulness all the time. Mindfulness has become the new modern world religion. And it's often applied in ways that the Buddha never taught. And that's not to say that it's wrong or bad, but it is inconsistent with what the Buddha taught. And so it can lead, um, it can lead to further fabrications and lead to further ignorance. So the Buddha teaches us what right mindfulness is. Right mindfulness is remaining mindful of the, of the body, free of distraction. Excuse me for a second. This is another one of those lines that really got my head spinning when I first came across it, because up until that point, I spent most of my Buddhist practice trying to believe the idea that the self is nothing and that we all resolve into something called emptiness or nothingness, or another thought was that this is just a a stepping stone. I need to recognize that there's something really wrong here develop a lot of merit so I can get some kind of reward in another life. And that my life, the whole purpose of life was an endless series of lifetimes of developing awakening. And I was also taught that you probably never be able to do it, but go ahead and do it anyway. I think you've all heard that one in in modern Buddhism. You can't do it, but go ahead and do it. Well, all of that leads leads to just constant speculation, constant stress. The Buddha says, and again, remember the Buddha studied in a, a so-called spiritual climate that was almost exactly the same as ours. It just wasn't worldwide communication, but the same spiritual ideas were put out there as uh, valuable or, or um, exalted or higher knowledge. The Buddha said, again, after his understanding, wait a minute, right mindfulness is remaining mindful of the body, free of distraction. What does that mean? Meaning I am mindful that I have a body. I'm not dismissing this body. I'm not disallowing this body. I'm not saying that I should disunite my mind and my body by constant distraction, by constant greed, aversion, and deluded thinking, by constantly focusing on the past and the future rather than limiting myself to right here and right now. I need to be mindful of my body, free of distraction, ardent, alert, and mindful while abandoning greed and reaction to worldly events. I unite my mind and my body. I am ardent, alert, and mindful of keeping it here. And how do I do it? By recognizing through speech and action and livelihood that I'm out of my body. I'm out of my mind. Take a breath. Recognizing that it is ignorance that's driving my speech and my actions. Let those go and keep my body, my mind united in my body. Framed by these simple tenets. Another thing, and I would probably say this later, and I usually do, but I'm going to say it now because it came to mind. This is where liberation comes from. When we finally integrate the Eightfold Path, especially these virtuous factors, so-called ethical, moral factors, when I really understand that I've integrated right speech, right action, and right livelihood into my life, 
Now I know I can no longer do any harm to myself or others. That's liberation. And it's nothing else. It's having the inner knowing. The Buddha would often refer to this in Sanskrit, Ali, but, but the inner poise that I can no longer harm myself or others. I, I'm going to give you all a moment to just think about that. If you truly knew that every thought, word, and idea that you had, every action that you had, could no longer bring harm to yourself or others. And I'm not talking about an egregious harm, such as slugging somebody in the nose or stealing something, or even worse. I'm, seeing, I'm saying even the harm of distracting another human being. Can you understand how that is the most liberating idea, the, the most liberating quality of mind that we can develop? That's truly remaining harmless. Right mindfulness is remaining mindful of feelings arising and passing away, free of distraction, ardent, alert, and mindful of abandoning greed and reaction to worldly events. Now he's referring it directly back to the four foundations of mindfulness. And what does it mean to be ardent, alert, and mindful of abandoning greed and, and reaction to worldly events? In relation to feelings, it's being at peace with whatever feeling I'm having. I am ardent and alert and mindful that this is a feeling. It's an impermanent feeling. I don't need this feeling to be any different than it is. And it's past. Feelings arise and pass away. I don't have to manipulate them. I don't have to grasp after them. I don't have to hang on to them. In fact, if I want to be liberated, I need to treat feelings as feelings. They just arise and pass away. And so then my feelings can become a reference point to the quality of my mind because if my feeling is causing distraction or distress, I know that I'm clinging or attaching myself or describing my life by my feelings. And again, the Buddha applies this to the next foundation of mindfulness. Right mindfulness is remaining mindful of mental qualities arising and passing away free of distraction, ardent, alert, and mindful, meaning simply being aware of the quality of my mind while abandoning greed and reaction to worldly events. In this moment, if I'm abandoning greed and reaction to worldly events, the quality of my mind will be calm and at peace, how the Buddha describes an awakened mind. It is this direct path, and I, and I want to emphasize that. Does everybody here understand when I'm saying this is the direct path, or the Buddha says this is the direct path for the purification of all beings, this is what he's saying. Ardent, alert, and mindful of abandoning greed and reaction to worldly events. Especially the worldly events that cr that's created in my own mind in reference to myself. I want this, I don't want that. I am this, I'm not that. Right mindfulness is remaining mindful of the quality of mind arising and passing away, free of distraction, ardent, alert, and mindful of abandoning greed and reaction to worldly events. That's the fourth foundation of mindfulness. Being mindful of the present quality of, of my mind without the need for it to be any different. But if I find the present quality of my mind is in distress or distracted, I recognize it, and now I understand the cause. It's not you. It's not the world. It's not a pandemic. It's not an idea of morality. It's my own thinking. And the great liberation in that thought, isn't it? What a great idea. It's my thinking. I can change my thinking. And how do I do it? By integrating an eightfold path. And that's all that I have to do. The Buddha concludes that by saying, this, friends, is right mindfulness. 
And what is right meditation? So again, an awakened human being teaches us precisely what to look for in a meditation practice. And, and by inference, he's saying what to avoid. For one who has developed right meditation, their concentration increases. And they withdraw from the need for sensual stimulation. Is your meditation practice bringing that to you? Whatever, I'm not talking about our jhana practice. Well, yeah, I am talking about our jhana practice. But think about other practices you may have done that, that developed, that didn't increase your concentration and increased the need for sensual stimulation. Including what I did for many, many years and in many seven and ten day sashins, grasping after the realization of nothingness and emptiness in my meditation practice. That's sensual stimulation, isn't it? Towards an idea, a fabricated idea, and other things, such as, uh, such as bliss, or meditating on a, on a flower, or an idea, or avalokiteshvara. Those are all sensual stimulations. For one who has developed right meditation, again, the Buddha always says, their concentration increases, and they withdraw from unskillful mental qualities. We know what unskillful mental qualities are. Anything that first cannot be humanly experienced, including the establishment of a mental quality outside of human experience in the realm of nothingness or neither per- perception nor non-perception, etc., etc. The dimension of infinite consciousness is an example of that. Unskillful mental qualities, excuse me. Or even the unskillful mental quality that since I am a meditation teacher, I need to be recognized as the world's greatest mental uh, meditation teacher or I'm just no damn good. Or anything else we might be doing, such as uh, altruistic uh, pursuits that we're engaged in, that we got to be the best or qualify it in some other way rather than just being at peace with what we're doing. Unskillful mental qualities, recognize them. For one who has developed right meditation, their concentration, inc- I, I, I think I might have led you astray. The reason why we're developing concentration is so we can recognize unskillful qualities as they're arising. So it's not, uh, it, it's not an aspect of wrong Dhamma practice when we recognize that here's a mental quality, what the hell's wrong with me? That's why we're practicing. So I can recognize an aspect of greed, aversion, or deluded thinking arising in this moment, recognize it because now I'm concentrated enough to see it, and simply abandon it. So as we develop our Dhamma practice, this is why I say we must be very gentle with ourselves. Because if we're doing it right, we're going to be coming up against a lot of wrongness. But it's wrongness that's rooted in a fabrication. It's wrongness that's simply recognized to be recognized and abandoned. And this way, it's not a moral or ethical or even a virtuous aspect. It's simply a fabricated aspect. There's no power behind it. For one who has developed right meditation, their concentration concentration increases and they enter or remain in the first jhana, the first level of meditative absorption, which is joyful engagement and pleasure in the Dhamma, born from withdrawal and accompanied accompanied by this, this directed thought and mindful evaluation. I've gone over the jhanas. I'm not going to do it again here. We've done it in three or four classes now. If anyone is confused by this when we go into discussion, please let me know though. For one of us develop right meditation, their concentration increases, and their directed thoughts and mindful evaluation quiets. They enter and remain in the second jhana, the second level of meditative absorption, which is joyful engagement and pleasure, born of, of deepening concentration, 
free from directed thought and evaluate, mindful evaluation, and confident within. Our concentration is, is deepening. For one who has developed right meditation, their concentration increases and their joyful engagement fades. That doesn't mean that we're, not, we're no longer taking pleasure. It's no longer noticed. We're deepening our concentration. So even that the, uh, the, the sensual pleasure of deepening our concentration, of sitting quietly, now fades because of concentration. Equanimity arises with, with mindfulness of pleasure in a mind united with the body, in a mind united in its body. They enter the third jhana. So you can say that you have entered the third jhana when you recognize that your mind is united in its body. And that's not a grasp. That's not, you're not grasping after a concept. The Buddha teaches us, yes, you have now established a third level of jhana. And for most of us, especially in the beginning of practice, that's going to be for a split second or a breath or two. The recognition that you've attained that is enough. In fact, that's the only reason the Buddha taught these deepening levels of jhana, so that we know that our concentration is increasing, that we're doing it right. The Buddha then even says that. The wise know this as equanimous and mindful, a pleasant abiding. So have any of you not had that experience, even if it's just for a moment, of a pleasant abiding in your mindful, in your meditation? I would bet you all have. Has anybody not? Please say no or wave your hand. That's the third level of jhana. And we have that each and every time we meditate. So deepening practice, deepening or ongoing practice is just deepening this experience that you know you can generate within yourself. Again, this is why we teach these, these deepening levels of jhana. They're nothing magical or mystical, so we recognize that we're doing it right. For one who has developed right meditation, their concentration increases. Their mind rests in equanimity. So that third level of jhana that we've recognized and developed is now increasing. Our mind simply rests in that level of equanimity. Neither pleasure nor pain have a footing. So we've gone beyond the need for fulfillment in this moment based on pleasure or avoiding pain. This is that fourth foundation of mindfulness, the present quality of mind. This is what's occurring in my life, and it's completely impersonal. I am, you heard me say this before. Now I am a reference point to what's occurring. This is a pleasant abiding. And in that moment, in that moment, I am living my life to its absolute fullest potential because I'm present for it. And there's no other point in my life that will be more significant than that moment. No matter what I achieve, someday I might get the award of being the greatest meditation teacher of all time. If I'm doing it right, it won't make any difference at all because it will just be another moment, another reference point. Their mind rests in equanimity. Neither pleasure nor pain have a footing. They enter remain in the fourth jhana. Their mindfulness and equanimity is pure. Free of wrong views, rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. This, friends, is right meditation. This is what the Buddha declared. Those gathered were gratified and delighted by his words. That's the end of the sutta. So I hope you're all gratified and delighted by these words. I'd like to hear if you are. Uh, I'm going to start with Alex. Alex, how are you? You delighted with these words? 
Yeah, I really am actually. I um, I've always wanted to go over the eightfold path in that much detail, and um, yeah, a lot of it, a lot of it sunk in, especially towards the end. It started to hit home. Um, I was actually going to ask you about if you, because you often talk about being the med- the greatest meditation teacher in the world, and that's me. <laughs> I often, I was going to ask you about how you would handle it if you were, if you were seen as that, but you just answered that question. It's a great question. I would charge a whole hell of a lot more for these classes. (laughs) Um, Uh, Let me me ask it honestly. And I I, I know this this will be disappointing. I don't know because I'm not, you know, I don't, I'm not recognized as such. If you were. If I were, I I don't, I'd like to think that it would make no difference except that I've, I've done a good job. You know, (laughs) because that's really all I do care about is when I first started teaching meditation after this, after the first class, the first class, I I wish I taped it because it was really silly because I was trying to attract people. But I realized what I was doing in the second class. I said, if I'm going to teach meditation, I'm going (coughs) to, excuse me, I'm going to teach it in the way that I can be authentic and I'm only going to teach what I know the Buddha taught. And that really changed everything and even changed my, my idea that I got to be the best meditation teacher because that's already taken, you know. Siddhartha, Siddhartha did it already. Yeah. Um, but that also, just to expand on that, that, it frees me of the tension of having to be the, the greatest meditation teacher or the greatest NASCAR driver or the greatest anything, doesn't it? And it allows me to have the pure pleasure of just teaching. Yeah, I mean, the greatest teachers are enlightened ones, I guess, is what we're what we're learning and. Um, if they're enlightened, from what I'm understanding, then they're just going to take each moment as it comes and not cling to any of it. And, you know, that, that another thing I noted down was how I wonder if my biggest hindrance is fear of that. Like, as soon as I think of that, like, like what you, you were talking about, um, you were talking about the joy joy uh one who has developed right meditation their joyful engagement fades and you were saying about how it doesn't mean we don't take pleasure in life it just means it isn't as noticed and that makes a lot of sense to me in that joyful moments just happen and they go yep. and we don't grab them yeah but that that i can feel my body going becoming fearful of that idea because um I don't know. Maybe there's, there's no you in it, Alex. I don't. Oh there's, yeah, there you go. There yeah, you go, yeah. Really. The the concept of self in there. Yep. Um, that's a very that's a very powerful uh, and subtle understanding, though. Where, yeah. Remember what the Buddha said: uh, where, where there's desire, there's fear. Where does desire come from? From eye making in this moment. Yeah, yeah. And many yeah. of us feel that if I don't have this this drive, if I don't have ambition, what's going to be what's going to come of me? Yeah, it's it's that oh. feeling of this is my joy, so I, I must. Yeah, I so then you're self-identified with it, and yeah, what what happens when you don't achieve it, or it changes in some way? Yeah, you're in um, trouble, it, aren't you? You 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 so, set up this. You set up the the um. You set up the situation for future disappointment by by your attachment in this moment, rather and and the the ongoing unfolding of your life might look exactly the same, yeah. but it'll be much more peaceful. If there's no you in it, no self-referential self in it. Yeah. Um, 
I'm sorry, I interrupted you too. But... No, it's just, um, it's, it's the same, you know, it's the same experience of following a suitor like this. It just hits home again of what this man was teaching. Um, yeah. And it's, it just needs, I just, we just need that constant reminder um, to keep going over it and learning. So yeah, it was a good learning for me. Thank you for going through it so carefully and um, yeah, I really enjoyed this one. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. I just want to say something because it came up a couple of weeks ago with uh, uh, that uh, there is too much information being portrayed here during these classes. And there is an awful lot of information that is portrayed here. Um, Suttas that I think I need to break them up, I do. Um, sometimes that just happens naturally. But the whole point of this, and it's something that uh, I was never taught. A, I, I was in, got engaged in modern Buddhism for over 20 years, and I was never, ever taught a sutta like we teach here. Sometimes I was taught a snippet, uh, a fabricated snippet out of something that might have been attributed to a sutta or a line or two out of the Dhammapada that was mischaracterized, and that was presented as Dhamma practice. Again, when I started teaching the Dhamma, I, the only way that I knew that I could remain authentic to what this human Buddha taught was to only teach what he taught, not what I thought he taught. And so that's why I only teach these suttas. And then, of course, you have my commentary, but I'm, the, I'm a teacher after all. So uh, that's the point. That's the reason why we do this and we do it over and over again. Now you've heard the Eightfold Path. Continue to integrate it. We'll keep coming back to this. I probably teach this sutta two or three or four times a year in different settings, sometimes on retreat. Again, again, the repetition is important. In the Dhammapada, the Buddha says, without repetition, there's no Dhamma. And this is another good example of that. So, Thank you, Alex. Uh, Ed, how are you today? It's good to see you. Oh, I'm doing fine, John. Glad to be here. Um, when you're talking about right effort, uh, I recall something that happened uh, in my morning's meditation. Now, I've been meditating before another for almost 50 years. Uh, most, some of those meditation techniques involve very elaborate constructions, imaginations, and so forth. Yeah. Most of them, I would say, have been extremely passive. You're supposed to just sort of sit back yeah. and watch what comes and sometimes to manipulate in subtle ways. But this morning, um, something, something dawned on me, which is probably very simple, but everybody knows I Apparently, it just escaped my notice for a very, very long time. I realized suddenly that I had the power to decide what I was going to think. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> and this, this, uh, this great surge of the sense of my own power and the liberating yes, yes, yes. anatomy almost overwhelmed me for a while. It is. And uh, I, I, I apologize to anyone else here if this is so basic and simple and you all know it. <laughs> it, it, it no, it's so significant. It just bowled me over this morning. Yeah. Isn't that, uh, and, and so you know it. You're having a direct so, experience of your deepening concentration. Um, I'm not sure when I teach it. There's a sutta, the, the Vitaka Santana Sutta, where the Buddha te- concludes that sutta by saying, and you gain the ability to think what you want to think when you want to think it. Uh, and yeah. that's what the, that's the, that again. It's such an a, an amazing but ordinary thing to be able to do. Uh, I'm gonna if I remember, I'm gonna send the send the link to. It. I think I teach it in this series pretty soon too. So no, as a matter of fact, I I noticed that suit this oh. morning. I was looking at. Well, that's that's rather auspicious too, Ed. So. Yeah, 
And I leaves of grass, and I, it attracted my attention. I made a mark to read it. Yeah, so, well, yeah, do it. Do it. Maybe I'll teach it next week anyway just to break it up, but we'll see. Thank you, Ed. I'm glad you joined us today. Uh, Thank you. Jordan, how are you? Hi, I'm pretty good. Thank hey, you. Jordan? Um, yeah, I guess I want to play a bit of devil's advocate um, in my comments today. In the fact that you often say that it's um, it's so simple and all the, all the Buddha's words are so amazing because they're they're so basic but then but then it, it takes 45 minutes to teach every sutta and to go through it and unpick it and to put it um <clears throat> reverse process it and if you look at it from this way and i just can't help thinking maybe it's my lack of patience and and not also maybe not being quick enough to mentally keep up with everything that's being said but i can't help think that it can be distilled down to a sentence. And obviously that is kind of probably just, I'm a minority that thinks that and going through it step by step and, and seeing every aspect of every single part of the sutta is beneficial for a lot of um, learners of Buddhism. Um, but yeah, and I guess it is similar to the way I approach academia as well. I, I did a bachelor's degree and I was just, oh, that's, that's enough for me everything's just every kind of dissertation can be summarized in a little in a little um, paragraph why would you need to spend months and months and months of research in the library unpicking it just if i if you can summarize it and i don't know what you want to do with that comment if you want yeah. to justify it or something yes thank you for for the for for playing the at that role it's important especially in our sangha you can you can you can um you can boil all this down into one word, and the Buddha did it. Calm. So if you want a reference point to the Dhamma, and in this moment, am I practicing it correctly? Is your mind calm and at peace? And if not, you need a little bit more practice. And again, getting back to what, what was brought up a couple of weeks ago, what you just mentioned now, there's a lot. Why does it take 45-minute classes? Because that's what they take. There's a lot to learn. But as you learn today, Jordan... Anybody can do this Eightfold Path. It's only because of my conditioned thinking that it seems overwhelming, that it seems like there's a lot to learn. But what is more, um, what's more important to my life but to continue my Dhamma practice? Again, this is the most, for me, this is the most significant thing I've ever learned or practiced on an ongoing basis. I couldn't imagine my life without th this Buddha's Dhamma. I consider it the, mo the most uh, auspicious aspect of my life. And I've had a, you know, an interesting, pretty good life. I wouldn't want it without this. And so, and I'm, I'm not giving up anything to do it either. I'm, I'm gaining everything. But when you start practicing, you can come up with all different ideas as to why it's so difficult. But that's just conditioned thinking. It just seems that way. What better time, again, just think about it this way. What better time for you all to spend the last hour and 15 minutes of your life than listening to the Dhamma and learning the Dhamma? I mean, I, honestly, I can't think of anything better. I can't think of anything more that I would rather do in my... I mean, I can't do this all the time, obviously. You know, I got I to gotta stop soon because I got to walk the dog, but, you know, life goes on. But we just spent the most significant hour and 15 minutes we could spend today doing this, I think. 
And it's and if you don't think that, that's okay too. There's no there's no judgment, but it relates back to right effort. So we're not good people because we practice the Dhamma wholeheartedly. You could say we're smart people, though. We're knowledgeable. We have a certain knowledge about how we want to live our lives, and we have a, a path of practice to do it. So again, to bring it back to that one word or one sentence, calm. And isn't that everything? When I talk about that, I always think back to when I was 12 or 13 or 14, when you start just really becoming self-aware, you know, 8, 9, 10. But uh, in your early teens, you start going out into the world. You start, you start becoming uh, uh, self-conscious at, around that age. And that was when I was becoming more and more confused. And I remember, I mean, what the hell is going on here? I remember questioning, why am I going to school? Why am I going to church? Why am I doing this? Why are they teaching me these things that didn't seem to make any difference? And it wasn't until I developed a Dhamma until I realized. The whole point is so that I have a calm and peaceful mind. When I was 12 and 13, my mind wasn't calm, but I didn't recognize that that, that that was what was missing. And it was missing because I didn't understand what was occurring. What could be more valuable than a calm and peaceful mind no matter what's occurring? A mind that is that understands what it means to be a human being. And again, I'm going on and on a little bit, Jordan, forgive me. But isn't that the most important thing, to know what the hell I am and what's going on here? It's not being yeah. the greatest meditation teacher. It's understanding what it means to be a meditation teacher. Jordan? Yeah, I, I'm not saying I have um, um, better things to do with um, 45 minutes of teaching. Uh, oh, no, I didn't imply that. I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to imply that, Jordan. I, didn't, I know you weren't. Okay, good. Um, yeah, no, no, no. It's helpful to explain. Um, yeah, it's just... It's, it's amazing that... Um, yeah, he can distill it down to one word, calm. But yeah. Write books and books of suitors. <laughs> yeah, and they, again, they all... Explaining one word. The, the four, I should add it up one day, the four noble truths are, are probably 20 or 30 or 40 words. That's everything the Buddha taught. It does take a little bit of explanation and it does take some practice. You know, you've, you've probably heard me say this too about different suttas, that the entire teaching is included in this sutta. You could say that about this one. If you understand four noble truths, you hear the Paticca Samapada Sutta, okay, you understand it all. But really, it's the application of all these different suttas that, that, that clarify it. It was by, before I started teaching, I had a pretty good understanding of what the Buddha taught. I had a measure of calm. I think I probably would have continued to develop that. But I understood at a much deeper level what the Buddha actually taught by teaching it. And I never would have had that, that opportunity <coughs> if the opportunity to teach didn't come by. So I would have gone along, I think, for the rest of my life, you know, with my pleasant little practice. But the subtleties of what the Buddha actually taught and the power of it would have been missed completely. So again, I consider myself so fortunate to have come across this, to have a mind that can understand it, nothing special there, and that it makes sense to me that a human being can actually develop it. You know, it's, it's Again, it's just remarkable you know, in that way. So thank you, Jordan. One thing, I, yeah, I was just going to say, I find your, um, how you relate it back to everyday life, uh, I find that super, super helpful. Yeah. Um, it allows me to kind of make uh, associations in my life as well on how I can um, 
um, put the Dharma practice into my life. And mm. I think that's, the, well, I guess if the Buddha had done that, maybe maybe those things would be a little bit um, dated and the things in his, some things in his life would be, would be a little bit, um, yeah, it wouldn't, wouldn't relate so much to our lives. A lot, a lot would, but a lot wouldn't as well. So. Well, this is exactly what he taught. You know, this the, he the, this is his dharma because the same situation that was present, pleasant, pleasant, present during the Buddha's time is present today, and it has nothing to do with external events, ignorance mm-hmm. of four noble truths. That has prevailed for twenty six hundred years ago, so that's why the dharma is still relevant. It's the same ignorance, it's still manifest in the same way, and the resolution is still the same. Again, that's what, when I realized that, that that's what brought all the relevancy of, these, of this, these teachings to me. I can apply them to my life. And apparently, and I will take credit for this, I must be a pretty good teacher of this, because I can help other people apply it to their lives in a practical way. Apparently, you know, and and you know, maybe I'll, let me take that just one thought further. I can only teach the people that I can teach. In other words, I'm not distracted by those that I can't because I know I can't. But if every, if maybe if I was a better teacher, is what I'm saying. If I was, if I was the world's greatest dhamma teacher, maybe there would be more p- people following me. But I can't worry about that. I can only teach who I can teach, and I hope. I hope it's you. I mean, I, I mean that's a, my skillful desire right here and right now is that I can teach this to you. In fact, those the three of you have that same desire. You want to teach this to others. So let's hear what Matteo. Thank you, Jordan. Matteo. Thank you. Um, yeah, I really like what Jordan raised, and I don't know. I can make some comment on this. Uh, uh, well, probably as a joke, I guess, like if Buddha, if Siddhartha has Twitter, probably he can do it in one sentence, all his theory. <laughs> and I don't know, and I'm also an academic, so I, I like your your comparison when you, you say that. It's like, a, you're right, like most of the time, even if I need for work, I need to be quick, you just look at the conclusion yeah. of that time. But then, uh, and you can relate it with the good day, you are limited with that. Because you you got the point, but you're don't you're doing going deep in it. Basically, you're not curious about that, and so you don't investigate it more. And all the point, I guess, all the turning point in the Buddhist teaching is like to investigate on yourself if this works or yeah. not. So, and uh, you know, to be curious is also like lead you to investigate in that. And uh, I think Buddhist teachings are really re- relevant now, and not so not so different than what, for example, if you look like ancient Greek philosopher, thought that there is a lot of similarities, what we say like Pythagoras or Plato. Mm-hmm. And because unfortunately, the problems are, are the same. That we yeah. have, they have like ages ago, we still have the same problem. If you look like all the Western philosophy, they are talking pretty much in a different point of view, but they talk about the same problem developing a different way. Not yeah, from never anything. changed. People from Pythagoras, then the same can say Nietzsche, and I can say Kierkegaard, the same. And there is some similarity. I, I don't know if it's a good news that we still have the same problem that we have like 20,000 years ago, but still. Yeah. Th- thank you, Matteo. That, that, that last thing you said, you know, I think about that too. Why, why are we still dealing with the same thing 
for 2,600 years ago, and I come back to the first noble truth. The Buddha declared as a consequence of having a human life, there's going to be dukkha. There's going to be stress. And he never said that, you know, in 2023, the stress will end. It's a consequence of having a human life. We are, we are on a plane of existence that is prone to, to greed, aversion, and deluded thinking. Rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. So that's it. You know, there's, not, there's nothing beyond that. To think beyond that is, is to fall into salvific thinking. That there should be an ultimate resolution for all of humanity. I don't know. What I found is that, that that's not the case, at least with this Dhamma. You know, it, it's, it's for those, just as the Buddha declared, for those with just a speck of dust in their eyes, those that are ready and willing and want to practice this. You know. I guess probably, the, the, uh, in my opinion, the only difference that's still a negative difference compared to the, let's simplify the Buddha's time, is like the nowadays, our era is really fast. So, you know, one day is like equal one year now, all this internet media. And probably yeah. like a lot of people, they're not anymore patient now to say like, okay, I sit. And uh, also like they are afraid of get boring, get bored. Yeah. You know, we want to always fill up our time because we don't want to think. And uh, and I guess Buddhism give us this option that we, where we can physically sit get bored and get tired also to read the sutra to yep. understand better to sweat on the books yeah yeah they, you're, again thank you Matteo there's the Dhamma and there's a discipline you know we have to learn it and that's how human beings we first learn things intellectually whether it's you know how to read a comic book or not we first learn something intellectually and then if it's valuable to us we'll put it into practice and that's that's what we just did here it's what we do in every class we first learn what it is and then we integrate it as best we can. Um, this, this, uh, even that the underlying need for things to be more can often filter down into our Dharma practice to want it to be more, to want it to resolve the the great issues of humankind. And it's it's just not meant for that. It's meant for that one thing that Jordan reminded me to bring out: calm. Do we want calm? And if my mind is calm, it really doesn't matter what's occurring in the world. And if I find um, a need for altruism out in the world, and we all do all the time, I'm in much better position to address it. Because I, I've reclaimed my mind, as Ed was saying. I can think what I want to think, rather than just a reaction to what's occurring. It changed everything. It changed everything during the Buddhist time. Excuse me. Um... There's an aspect of the Dharma that can seem quite selfish at times because the initial focus is within me. And it goes against a lot of the way the world has evolved, but I can also apply the word devolved, that to have any, any self-interest is selfish. And in the Buddha's radical thinking, it, it really was just the opposite. The, the first interest that we should have is self-interest, understanding what it means to be a self. Remember, the Buddha didn't teach there's no such thing as a self. And so by inference, he could, you could say that he's teaching what it is to actually be a self, which is what he is teaching. What does it mean to be a human being, to be a reference point and dispassionate, impersonal reference point to life as life occurs? Thank you, Matteo. Tom. 
Hi, John. Hi, everyone. Yeah, I've really enjoyed the discussion. Um, maybe I'll sort of piggyback on what Matteo was saying. And, and um, I, I, that word you said, uh, Matteo, curiosity, right? And so coming back to this idea of, yes, you could read an essay and you could just buy the, um, the cheap, you could read the conclusion or you could buy the you could buy the cheat notes, right? You could buy the, you know, the cliff notes or whatever they're called, the York notes that we call in the UK. Sure, you can. And if if the purpose was to pass an exam on the wow. Buddha, you might be able to get away with it, right? But the reality is you're not showing, through doing that, you're not showing the level of curiosity which will then give yeah. rise to everything else which follows with rise to the right you know really prioritizing it in your life showing right effort um uh, right intention etc etc so so i think that's why just saying the word calm is not quite enough somehow because it's not going to sit home it's not going to stir enough curiosity in your mind so this is where but it happens to me all the time where i even even now even though i'm fully sort of signed up to these teachings and i it's it's I, as you know i've said many times it's been very transformative for me there are many many well not many but but certainly sometimes i come to a class and i'm just not in that curious mood and the teachings can kind of glaze over me a little bit and i'll be sat there and i'm the word i'm kind of listening but i'm not applying that curiosity to like wait because at the end of the day you become your own teacher right it's up yep. to you to learn something from those words because it won't be it's not this is not any other kind of teaching where you're you're supposed to sort of you know grasp onto the new you know what's the new idea what's it it's not like that it's really um you know you have to do your work yourself and and so what for example today what really sat with me was more right effort and um you know these words you know skillful desire and ongoing persistence to avoid unskillful qualities that are not present and it got me thinking of last night i was about to go to bed i watched a uh, something on Netflix and I was about to go to bed. I was quite calm and I got involved in like a text exchange, which just got my end up and it got yeah. me a bit like, Ugh! and I suddenly realized I was like, I'm not going to sleep like this now. So I meditated yeah. uh, for about just 10 or 15 minutes. Really? And I had very similar to Ed. I had that realization, not that it was the very first time I've had it, but it was that it's that experiential learning of being like, wow this works yeah. i remember thinking like wow this works because i was so angry and i still was angry by the end of it meditation it hadn't gone away the feeling but i was slightly distanced from it and i just I, I, I that conviction it works just came back and it was amazing to know that even if i was still feeling a little bit stressed anyway came out of meditation and i made the mistake of checking my phone again <laughs> and then i got rolled up again and so again it just connects to what john was saying right it's it's that's human life yep. and all you can do is you were saying john um you know you have to be gentle with yourself uh, because if you're doing it right you will come up with a lot of wrongness yep. right you just will it's just naturally going to happen and so and then the other thing you said was you know if you're not doing it so coming back to that you know that, that quote that I just, you know, skillful desire and ongoing persistence to avoid unskillful qualities that are not present at the time. So I wasn't in that state of mind, but I did something which led me, I got yep. involved in a text exchange, yep. which led me to to getting stressed. That was your right so effort. I was totally responsible for it. And so, you yep. know, as you were saying, if you're, 
if you're not doing it, like if you're not, if you're doing something wrong, just change it, simplify, you know, just, just do it. Right. So, or just not do it. And so I realized it was, I was just, it was my, of my own doing. And, um, anyway, it just, it just was that one little aspect of the teachings, which, which was so relevant and it just made, it was very humbling as well. Right. Cause you yeah. think you're making progress and you realize you're not, but then you're, you still have to be kind with yourself because that's just the nature of it. It's just, you just have to keep, keep going. Um, so yeah, anyway, so I, I enjoyed listening to everyone's cause I, I got something from what everyone shared actually in different ways. So, um, thanks. And thanks for teaching Sean. Uh, thank you, Tom. And for your insight, um, a year and a half ago, would you have recognized that you were distracted by your texting and just, uh, that you disturbed your mind? No, I probably, I just find another way of dealing with it. I try to sort of, I'd, I'd watch some motivational talk on it or I'd, um, yeah. I don't know, I'd, I'd, I'd try and find a solution. But yeah, it wouldn't be the sim. It wouldn't, it, it wouldn't be consistent and coming back to what is, yeah. what is true. It would be what something relating, even on a subtle level, to some grasping for life yeah. to be different or for that problem not to exist at all. So, yeah, yeah it, would be, it would be different for sure. Yeah. That, what you're describing is Dhamma practice. What do you hear me say? At the point of contact. For you in that situation, at the point of contact was when you recognized that you were disturbed by what you just did. That's Dhamma practice. That's how we practice. That's a, an example of deepening concentration. You, were, you had the inner, inner poise, the concentration, available to you that could recognize what you were doing to yourself. Again, getting back to what Ed said. And then you also displayed the opportunity or the ability to think what you wanted to think in that moment, which was, I want to be calm. I want to reclaim my mind. That's the power of the Dhamma. And again, it's so. It, it, and when you look at it that way, it's almost absurdly obvious. You know, why do I need all this training, all this practice, all these different suttas to do this simple thing? That's the why you don't answer. But we'd be grateful or, or recognize the our good fortune to have this. That the, you know these teachings are still here. It's it's a simple eightfold path that we learn today, and we develop ultimately calm. You know what a what a great class, great comments. Uh, great insight. Anybody else have any questions or comments before I finish with Meta? May, may yes. I add something? Please. I, I just stand up because I remind you, like, I want to recommend to Jordan this book. What does it yeah. say? Why do you recommend it? More than anything. No, what, what I was talking before, also to Alex, because he raised, like, the topic about to be happy in the moment. So it's a, it's very, like, a comparison with the Buddhist Buddhist and Stoic in the ancient Greek. Oh, that's... so it's it's not very very uh, complete, but they do a lot of like matching to show that like it's something it, it's not it's nothing new. The Buddhists, even in our culture, just we forgot. Well, uh, yeah, that, I'm glad you brought that up because I want to say the 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 great philosophers, um, <coughs> many of them touched on similar themes that the Buddha taught. I've never come across one that actually taught the direct path to developing that type of thinking or understanding. And that's what set the Buddha apart, I think, throughout time. And certainly during the Buddhist, the Buddha was, uh, the, the, it's, the Buddha understood a lot of the, the uh, ancient philosophers as well. 
And he found them lacking only in the fact that they didn't have a path to developing that type of understanding. And I've seen that with, with a lot of great thinkers that were unable to... Uh, I don't know if you've heard of Jiddu Krishnamurti. I've referenced him a few times. He was someone who had who, who I would consider um, an awakened human being, except he lacked the ability to teach others how to do the same. He would often teach people to, to be calm, be, you know, be mindful, um, one of his uh, catchphrases was, look at the life you're living, meaning you have to have this inner inner knowing. But he never, ever, at least I never came across, I read a lot of Krishnamurti, and he never taught anybody how to do it. He seemed to have it naturally. And that, that is something that set Siddhartha aside from everyone else that I've ever studied. That's not to say that there's other people that came to the same conclusions. They just couldn't teach other people how to do it. Um, would you agree with that, Matteo? And I'm not trying to get you to agree with me, but it's okay if you don't. Yeah, that, yeah that was the I think the main difference. No, you read a lot of this stuff in, uh, in ancient Greek, and you say, "Oh, wow, that's like like blowing my mind." It's very similar to Buddhism. That's what I should do. But then it's like nobody. There is not a manual like in Buddhism. They say, "Okay, what is the steps to reach that?" So, yeah, like the only one, as far as I know, was Siddhartha. Yeah. Yeah, it's one thing to have an intellectual understanding of, of the, the human mind's potential. It's another thing to be able to do it. And again, that this is what Siddhartha understood. And it, again, the highest human potential, I think, would be understanding what it means to be a human being. Because then you can take that this individual human being to its highest level, if you want. You know, you may, you may decide, we had a, Alex and I had a good talk about this, you may decide that as your as your Dharma practice develops, that your outward focus about what you're doing with your life uh, simplifies and becomes less and less important. You might not. I mean, you might you might decide to do what the Buddha did and and walk around your neighborhood and teach the Dharma. But at the you will do whatever you do with a calm and peaceful mind, understanding why you're doing it. Tom just touched on that too. You understand why you're doing it, why you're thinking the way you're thinking. Um, anybody else? All right, we'll we'll continue with this next uh, next Thursday. Tom, you're shaking your head. Do you have something else? You're you're muted. No, all good. So, sorry, no, no. I've got slightly delayed um, um, stream, uh, but all good. Okay, all right. Okay. Um, there was something else I want to talk about. Oh, our uh, our. Uh, Midwinter retreat begins a week from tomorrow. There's information on the website and in the email. Uh, and I changed the email. Uh, it's now going to be sent out three times a week on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday because that more clearly relates to our classes, but it also allows me to send out clearer newsletters that related to each class at a time rather than two newsletters for three classes. I think that was getting confusing. It's getting confusing for me anyway. So. About that, the retreat that is like in a week time. So I guess our teaching meeting would be in two weeks time because we skip the first week of February. Yeah, it's going to be in two weeks time. I, I didn't set that up already, okay. but yeah, I'll put it on the calendar. It's not next Saturday. It's the week after that. Okay, okay, cool. Yeah, because we'll be on retreat. All right, let's finish with meta as we always do. So take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath. And Matteo, if you want to hang on a little bit after class, that would be great. If you can, I understand it. Sure, sure. And, yeah. and Alex, you can if you want. I think you said you need to go, but... Yeah, I've got to head off after class. But... Okay. 
All right, let's, uh, we'll finish with meta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class today. Peace. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.